and welcome everybody in the lobby that's coming in. And uh, summer's on us, and it feels like it's already deep into it, and I feel like it just started like yesterday, and just looked at our calendar and all the things we've got going on, and Rob uh, told Aureli this week and uh, staff, he said, well, enjoy vacation next week, and Aureli said, oh, no, no, it's another week after that, and he goes, uh, no, it's on the calendar next week, and Aureli looked like, oh, no, it's vacation next week, so... Yeah, things in our own life are coming up so fast, uh, we can't even keep up with them. And I don't know if you feel the same way. Uh, but let's take a minute and uh, pause for a moment and, and just re- reflect on what God might say to us in this morning message. Uh, and let's start it with prayer. How about that? We're doing a series on effective prayer. Maybe let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, we just calm down and hear you speak this morning and talk to us through your word and through this sermon, through our worship and communion. We get in a place that we feel really close to you. I can hear you. I thank you for your word. And I thank you for being here. Holy Spirit, will you just empower what we have to share here? Amen. Well, as Bernard said, I'm Jeff. I'm one of our pastors here. And welcome, welcome everybody that's here this morning. And um, last week... Last week, Aureli kicked off a a series, a a short series we have on effective prayer. And she kicked it off by winning Chopped. Wasn't that great? I just like couldn't get over it. I just had to say something. I'm so proud of her. Um, And and I I just, you know, it was kind of surreal, the whole experience and uh, the moments of that. And I'm just so proud of uh, Aureli and what she did. But in her uh, accomplishment through winning Chopped, I thought she did a great job walking us through uh, kind of a, a simple three-ingredient recipe uh, for effective prayer. And that was a great way to get this series started. And I'd like to walk through that real quick again with you, just to remind you, so we can build on that. I think I do have a slide for that. Yeah, there we go. Let's just remind you, from, from Colossians chapter 4, Aureli reminded us last week that we need to devote ourselves to prayer. Uh, it's one thing if we want effective prayer, but if we're not going to be praying, guess what? <laughs> it's hard to accomplish much. So we have to be devoted to it and devoted to prayer. And then being wise and making the most of every opportunity that comes up. The Lord pre- presents opportunities. We have opportunities And we need to be wise to take advantage of those and how to do that. And we've all come in those instances. We'll feel like the person um, that things keep coming our way. And we keep saying, God, I'm waiting on you and waiting on you. And he turns around and says, I've been bringing all these things along the way. And you've been ignoring them. And so to be wise. And then finally, how to be gracious in the actions and how we move forward uh, when he calls us to respond. And I thought it was a great, great start on how we look at effective prayer. And today I want to build on that 
And I want to build on that in reopening my notes. I want to build on that by how we can learn how to stay connected. Uh, if you're going to put your ingredients or your recipe in Lola, uh, as Rayleigh calls her frying pan, uh, and you must know, heaven help me, if I don't wash Lola really well, because, you know, she got to take care of her, but you have to keep Lola connected and uh, to actually turn in, uh, turn those ingredients into something effective. And that's what I'd like to do. You know, as we look through Scripture, we'll find all kinds of stories and all kinds of things of people who prayed and are like incredible results poured out. Have you ever looked at those and read those stories and say, oh, I'd sure like that to happen in my life, right? You've done that, right? You said, I'd like, to, I'd like to be able to pray like that person did and what happened. And there was a story in my uh, readings recently that was one of these, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but I just wanted to bring it to the forefront. And David reigned, and God established him through, uh, as a great warrior that he was, established and brought peace to the community and people of Israel that they'd not had before, and established a firm kingdom, and he reigned for 40 years. And the 12 tribes, the 12 families of Israel came, and he reigned for 40 years. And then his son Solomon, and I think recently in a sermon, I think, Rob, you, you talked about Solomon, um, he reigned for another 40 years, and he sought God's wisdom on how to manage his people. And he started his reign really following God. It went bad towards the end, but he reigned for another 40 years. And because he started moving to an unfaithfulness to God, God appeared to Solomon a, a third and last time in his life, and he said, because you didn't follow me, I'm going to rip the kingdom into pieces but I won't do it in your lifetime, but it will happen in the lifetime of your son. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, took over the kingdom. And when he did, rebellion occurred. War broke out. Not war from the outside as David had fought and war for conquering, but war within. And war broke out within, and all but two tribes were left under Rehoboam's reign, Judah and Benjamin. And all the rest formed what was then called Israel. And you had the southern part that was called Judah. And Rehoboam had his reign, but he didn't follow the Lord. He wasn't faithful to the Lord, and he worshipped other gods. And his reign endured somewhere around 17 years, and it was over. And it passed on to his son, Abijah. And he continued the evil practices that were started by his grandfather Solomon, that were continued by his own father, and he was evil in God's sight. And after three short years, he fell, and his kingdom ended. And there was uproar within all the nation what just 40 years before had been the most powerful, influential nation and country that existed in their time in the world. And matter of fact, the Bible says there was none ruler wiser than Solomon and none aggregation of all the riches in the time compared to any time in history had fallen into rule and conflict and self-fighting. And so it brings us into the story of Solomon's great-grandson, who takes over the reign just 20 years after Solomon 
had left and passed on. His name was Asa, and he became the king. And he did what was right. He went through the nation in, in Judah, and he started tearing down these other altars to other gods. He ceased the practice for worshiping others. And he started turning the people's hearts back to the Lord. And he built up a massive army of 580,000 warriors. Said they were well-trained warriors. And we have to put our minds in this place of peace, of, that wasn't peace, that was conflict, constant war, really, that they'd known over the last 20 years. This infighting and bitterness, plus all the enemies from the outside, and God helped him reestablish. And the Bible tells us in Second Chronicles, he had 10 years of peace. And it goes on and starts telling the story. And I was reflecting on it. 10 years of peace was really significant. I've been on this earth 60 years. And I don't know that I've seen 10 years of peace across the world. In the 60 years that I know, can you imagine 10 consecutive years of peace? A huge accomplishment. And I want to pick up a story in 2 Chronicles. And if you just follow along with me, a few short verses, I want to read to you what happened with King Azza as he turned people's hearts back to the Lord. He had a mass army to help protect and defend his people. And the scriptures tell us this, and if you'll listen as I read, there was an Ethiopian named Sarah. Some of your Bibles might say a Cushite comes up from eastern Africa. And he attacked Judah with an army of one million men and 300 chariots. How many of you guys have been to Gillette Stadium when it's full and seen, or, or seen on TV with one of the, the stadium full? Has everybody in here seen Gillette Stadium full, right? Some 65, okay. Has everybody been to Fenway Park or, or the baseball game? Anyway, I mean... Most of you, some of you have seen the ballpark and it's full. If you were to take those 65,000 people, you have to represent 25, I think it's 25 times more than that, showed up at King Asa's front door in his backyard. I don't know if we can even imagine what it was for one million soldiers trained for battle who had swept up the eastern Africa coast and had come into his front door. They had left pillage everywhere they'd gone and he was standing there and that's what he's faced after he's turned people's hearts back to God and it says they advanced to the town of Marashah and so King Asa deployed his armies for battle he got himself ready okay I've got to defend our people in the valley just north of there and he cried out to the Lord his God remember we're talking about effective prayer O oh Lord, no one but you can help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O oh Lord, our God, for we trust in you alone. It's in your name that we've come against this vast horde. O oh Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere men prevail against you. And the Bible says, and so the Lord defeated the Ethiopians. In the presence of King Asa and the army of Judah. And the enemy fled. As intimidating as it be to see one million standing in your front door, what was the scene to see one million fleeing in terror at the hand of God? 
Can you imagine? One million upturning and fleeing from them. And it appeared that it wasn't King Asa and his 580,000 who actually were turning. Something happened. Some movement of the army of God in the spiritual world reveals itself and it starts turning this one million into panic and they rush away from Judah. The scripture goes on and says, And King Asa and his army pursued them as far as Gerar. And so many Ethiopians fell that they were unable to rally. And they were destroyed by the Lord and his army. And the army of Judah, for their part, carried off a vast amount of plunder. I was amazed as I looked at this story and I read about it. That's the kind of faith I'd like to have. Wouldn't you like to have prayer that when you're faced with incredible odds and circumstances, God would stand up and his army would stand in front of you and fight for you? Yeah, wouldn't you love that? An army twice their size. And though he was prepared and had his army ready and they had 10 years of peace and training and readiness, he realized, I can't do this. God, if you don't intervene, we're powerless. If you don't do something, intervene for us. Do you want just mere men to come up and, and destroy what you've left? And without a word in the scripture that God said anything back, before his very eyes, God responds. What faith. What humbleness, I think. I mean, if I can't even imagine what 580,000 stand like in front of an army like that. I think you would feel pretty good, right? Pretty prepped, ready. And he felt powerless. So how do we take these ingredients that were laid out for us? Prayerful devotion, that wisdom of resolve, putting grace into action, and make them their stories in our own lives. How do we do that? Are you interested? I think the New Testament, I believe the New Testament story, one of them that Jesus shared, will help us understand this. And I'd like to read where this story is, and it comes in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 15. I have it on the screen. If you have a Bible your own personal Bible, whether in paper or electronically, uh, I encourage you to read it from there rather than from the screen. Um, there's something powerful when you'll connect what's your own version, your own copy, and see it in front of you. Jesus stands for the people and he says this, I am the true grapevine. And my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine. 
you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. This brings great glory to my father. I want to zoom in here on this seventh verse. I want to focus into it with this aspect of prayer. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. And within this verse, there's a key word. A key word that I think helps unlock the context and meaning of effective prayer. That word in my mind, is remain. Other popular versions, you might see abide if you're looking at your own Bible. It has the idea of being staying connected. Thus, today's sermon. And that's what's required to cook. You have to have your skillet connected to some source of energy in order for those ingredients to become something. Now, let me explain something. By context, this verse is not some unconditional formula for getting answers, just by asking. Let me say that again. It's not some unconditional formula, just by the context when it is, because Jesus says, you must remain in me and my words remain in you. So there's some conditional element to it. So it's not just like I can stand up and start declaring things, okay? Nor is this verse to be understood as some kind of conditional formula. I'll declare my allegiance to Jesus or to God. I'm a Christian. I've got my own copy of the Bible, and I look at it, and I'm going to start asking, and whatever I want, I'm going to get it. I'm going to, de- I'm going to claim it, and I'm going to declare it, and by golly, God's going to do it for me because I have a Bible, and I have a found verse 15, 7, and it says I'll do that. I'm a Christian, and I'll do that. That's not what it says. For remain has much greater significance than just pledging the allegiance. There's many who pledge allegiance. And there's some who gave their life when they pledged allegiance. So that we could have this day, tomorrow, this weekend, of independence in our own country. And and they were willing, and they, they took the ultimate sacrifice. They went beyond standing in Fenway Park and singing and putting their hand over their heart. They went in harm's way. Yesterday, Alan met up with a friend from school as they're planning to do something for next year. And 
uh, this person is not aligned with God, <laughs> is really far from God in a lot of different things, and, and they were able to have a dialogue, and he felt so encouraged because it was one of these times he's rarely gone that, that place with somebody that's so far on the other side um, and, and had talks about you know, his faith and why he believes in that. And that's the ultimate story for us because there's one who didn't just say, Jesus actually did it. He laid down his life in harm's way for us. And he went to the cross for us. And that's what we believe here. And Jesus knows these moments are about to come. Uh, by the time you get to John chapter 15, you have to know kind of where you're at in the Bible calendar of Jesus' three and a half year ministry. And it was actually in the last week. It was actually right before the Last Supper, you know, at the Last Supper when he's sharing this story. He, he's actually right down to the last hours and days, and he knows what's going to happen. And so when he talks about staying connected, remaining, abiding in me, there's a lot more significance than just pledging allegiance to him. Because he was going to do a lot more than just pledge allegiance to God. He was going to submit his will and his desires and say, not my will, but yours be done. And he would kneel down in Olive Grove not too many hours later and ask God for strength to do that. So understanding this verse and understanding this word can unlock that. And so let's just take a moment. Would you just close your eyes with me just for a moment? Again, I want to ask, Holy Spirit, would you come and would you unlock this word for us? Would you unlock this verse for us? Would you show us and tell us what it means to stay in you, to remain in you, to remain in your words? Would you unlock this for us now? Amen. So by suggesting, and he didn't just suggest, but I'll use that word, remain in me and remain in my words, does suggest, though, that we must be free to not remain. Did you follow me on that? Uh, by saying remain in me means we must be free to not remain, which brings some kind of things in your mind. Uh, don't get lost with me here. But the context of the analogy is speaking more than or differently than the idea of, okay, you're a Christian or not a Christian. He's cutting off branches, and so they must not be, and I can lose my faith, and I cut off branches. No, I think it's talking more about that relationship of being fruitful, and we'll look back at that in a few minutes, because he said, if you're not pruned, and some of you have already been pruned, which is good, but if you've not been pruned or if branches are cut off, they're useless and they're worthless. So there's something to it. In my mind, it's about ongoing living, ongoing staying in there. Look at what he said in verse 4 and 5. Just back up for a minute. Yeah. He said, if you remain in me and I remain in you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Some of you are different stages of your Christian walk and Christian life and where your faith is, but I think you get an idea of what it means to be fruitful and productive and do things for the Lord. How many would like to be more productive in their walk with the Lord? I'll raise both my hands. And so I need to be. 
Okay, I, I want to be. We want to be. How do I be more productive and fruitful, which includes part of this prayer? How do I be that? And wherever I go, whatever, how do I make the most of every opportunity? How do I do it with grace and act for it? Hmm. I must remain in Jesus, and he'll remain in me. For I can't produce any fruit if it's severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit, for apart from me you can do a whole lot, but fall short. You can do nothing. So remain, the, the word that's used there is from a Greek word, mano. And it means to obviously remain or to abide, but to stay, to, to reside, to make your home there. To some kind of permanence that's there. Or, as we're using in today's sermon, to stay connected. And so to free to, be, to remain means there's a choice to do it or not do it. But also it means that it can't be by force. To, to force us to remain in Him would be prison. Uh, or some robotic kind of response. You're automatically now consumed by the Spirit, and so then you can't not remain in him. You're just going to constantly know there seems to be this need and it's not robotic or some kind of in our current cultural kind of use of words, some codependent relationship. I have to do it because, you know, Jesus wants me to let him down and he's going to let me down. And, uh, you know, it's not that. It's by choice, as I said. But I don't know if your life is like mine, but there are some really good times I've had in my life. Have you ever gone through a hard time? How about a bad time? Anybody ever been under stress? You ever been in a quiet time? A boring time? A distracted time? It's in all those times. And he wants us to remain in him, to make our home in him, to stay connected in him. And there's watchouts for each one of those areas, right? Whether it's good or bad. So remaining, staying connected to the Lord is not always easy. But it's a choice. And we must continually seek it. And that's what Aurelia was teaching that first degree last week. Devote yourself. It's a continual thing. We have to devote ourselves. We continually seek God. It's not like I arrived. And some of you who are close to me and friends of mine know that I haven't arrived and this is partially why we often ask, and you'll hear us ask in our movement, hear us ask a lot and say, Holy Spirit, please come. Please fill me even more. It's not like he went away. It's but that we need that continual refreshing, continual reminder of him remaining and staying and revitalizing us to pull us in. We're opening ourselves. Come, come. Where, where I've pushed you out, come and fill me again. Where I've shaded you out and, and, and inhibited you, would you come fill me up again and again? And he penetrates us. It moves within us. Close your eyes again for me. Would you ask in your heart right now, Holy Spirit, would you come and just move with me? Just come, fill me right now. Move, Holy Spirit. Across this auditorium, would you move? Would you fill us? Fill us, let us receive you. Let us sense your presence right now.
and you may actually experience a physical sensation. You may not. As my arms tingle right now and I feel and I sense the presence of the Lord and I look across this room and I see you, I feel like and I can sense the Holy Spirit moving among you and on you and in you. So Jesus directs this remaining, come with me now, He directs this remaining into two areas. Back to verse 7. He says, if you remain in me. That's the first one. If you stay in me. If you make your home in me. Not just a one-time welcoming, but I mean you're just all the time welcoming Jesus and making your home with him. Whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's easy, whether it's stressful, whether it's great, whether it's in financial glory, whether it's not. Like, Jesus, you're welcome. Welcome, Jesus, come. Making your home in him. This active kind of relationship. A marriage, and I've had the blessing to be able to perform some with my own daughters and some folks here in the church and kids, and it was a real blessing, even experienced a beautiful marriage and wedding ceremony with a Rayleigh, but it can't end at the wedding ceremony, can it? I do. I do. And like, okay, and then you just go off and live your lives. It, it, it doesn't work well that way, does it? Anybody that's married knows it doesn't work well that way. There's this continual pushing in and in the relationship and wanting it to be better, wanting it to be stronger. And when things divide and things stuff, it, we start pulling away. But it's this relationship with Jesus to continually come in. Continually say, it didn't just happen in the moment I was saved. I remember back in, you know, name a date, name a time, or name it even if you can't, and say, I'm there. It's this continual pressing in. I want my relationship, Jesus, with you to be new and fresh today. Welcome into this moment. I want to see you in this moment right here because this person is really laying into me. Or I've had a bad response in how I did this, and I need you to help me through this because I didn't do this well. Or I'm looking at my bank account and they might as well close it because there's no use for it to be open right now. Or you look in it and say, where'd that money come from? And our first response be, oh, we're going on vacation now. It might be Jesus. Thank you. You know, it's, it's pressing in in all those ways. So remain in me. Stay fixed in me. Stay connected with me. Make your home in me. It's a continual devotion, continual thing. We got it, right? Okay. Okay. It's a singular, close, pure, all-inclusive relationship with Jesus. With Jesus. You might get a sense why God says he's a jealous God. There are no other gods but him. And why are you going off people and worshiping other gods and making idols of other gods when there's no one other but me? You get a sense how he responded to Israel when they started putting up pagan kind of idols, worshiping them and doing all kinds of sacrifices. There's none other thing. We already talked this in the past. We can do it in our own culture and we don't have to create an idol. We can make one out of the things we own and what we do and our jobs and even our own kids and families. We can make all kinds of idols, but he wants us to stay focused on him. A pure and authentic relationship. Because we want to be like King Asa, right? And be able to call on Lord wherever we face. God, you alone I serve. So it's this path of being prepared along the way, making the best of every opportunity. The second thing he says us to do is to remain in his words. 
Jesus is asking us to make his words remain, be at home in us. We are to stay connected to him and to his word. These aren't just the red letter words that Jesus used. And there's a huge movement right now of just, I can only follow what Jesus said. You know, if it's not the red letter, it's not going to do it. Because Jesus, in the very context of this scripture, in this verse, he said, and my father is the master gardener. I'm the vine. The source of all life and things flow through me into you. All the words that I give you and all that my father has spoken and said are for you. So it's not just the red letter version. Just thought I'd throw that out in case you're wondering about that. That was free. I just thought I'd give it to you. But we must continually feed on him. The word of God does something. It fills our minds. If you'll let it, if you'll remain in it, if you'll make your home there, it'll direct our wills. Some of us have a stronger will than others. Some of you were born with, had children were born in your home that have a stronger will than you imagine they could possibly have. <laughs> you know, where did that will come from? As you, oh, you know. <laughs> and some of us are influenced in different things, but it directs our wills. It transforms our affections. The Word of God starts moving and doing things. And so here's how I want to pull this together. Paul wrote this to the Romans. And he said this about this relationship, this transforming relationship. Listen to me. He said this, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, what you do and who you are, as a living and holy sacrifice to the Lord. This is your spiritual service of worship. You want to know how you worship? You present yourself to the Lord as he desires. That's your spiritual service of worship. And then he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That doesn't sound like a singular event to me, does it to you? This transforming doesn't sound like something that happened. I read through the scriptures once and I got it. It sounds like something I need to grasp hold on and let God's word continue to move me and move within me. Do you get that? And the transformation, it starts happening. It doesn't mean automatically we're there. It doesn't mean we've always achieved it, but we're still moving. God, conform me to your will, to your desires. Transform me. I want to be like you. I know there's elements of the world and don't let them overwhelm me. I want to stay in you and make my home in you and your word. So I'm just going to go through a few more scriptures that he talks about. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God, all, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. When Joshua was going to take over the reign of a two million person nation of Israel and move them across into the promised land, Moses had handed him what 
All would say today is the canon, the first five books of the Old Testament, the history of the people, of God's laws and commandments and recognitions. He'd hand them to Joshua, and the Lord God says this to Joshua. He's getting ready to take the people into the promised land. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. This is God saying this to Joshua. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So that you may be careful to do according to everything that's written in it. Then you will make your way prosperous. And then you will have success. Because you can wander off these other paths. Just remember. And so the word can remind us. Can refresh us to what we need to do. Hebrews 4.12 said the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing as far as the division of both soul and spirit. Of joint and marrow. Able to judge the thoughts and intentions or motives of the heart. Hmm. Jeremiah, a prophet, hundreds of years before the time of Jesus, uncovers God's words and he said, Your word was found and I ate them, I devoured them, and they became for me a joy. And the delight of my heart, for I've been called by your name, O God, O Lord of heaven's armies. The psalmist wrote this. He says, and I'm going to look at my friends and the young folks for a minute because it's directed towards you. But it's directed to all of us. How can a young person keep their way pure? How can you keep your way pure? That's what the psalmist questions. And he answers it this way. By keeping it, Lord, according to your word. Your word I've hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. Your word, later on in that same psalm, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We are to remain in God's word. It transforms us. It transcends into the very being who we are, our motives, intentions, and will. Staying connected to Jesus, staying connected to His Word, opens up a whole new avenue of what we're going to ask and how we're going to pray. Suddenly, those desires aren't my desires. God, it's not my will. It's what you to be done. And so when we come back and, and call out, oh God, if you remain in me, my words remain in me, ask whatever you wish and will be done for you. It's not like, my wish list of God, and I've got this wish list. We're, we're a whole culture of bucket list people. Like, I've got these top ten things I'm going to do, and I've got this wish list things I want. And we train our kids up from early on. And Christmas, give me your wish list. And so we see something like this, and we say, oh, Jesus, here's my wish list. And he's not really ready to look at the wish list until you take everything off of it. He's not ready to look at your wish list until you're willing to take everything off of it first and let him transform what goes onto that list. And as you start writing in God, if you start writing in his will, figuratively speaking, it becomes conformed to what he wants and his desires and his look. And what he wants for us is good and healthy and transformational. It can change you. Do we want that? Now, 
Here's how I'm going to wrap this up. The first six verses, I didn't spend any time there. It's kind of a horticulture um, discussion. Not that it's not relevant. As I've started a little bonsai practice in my own home, a little jungle that's there, um, I've killed plenty. I've already told you before, violated that you know, commandment of thou shalt not kill, and I'm pleading God, I'm sorry, I keep killing your little trees. But there's some things I'm learning out of this, and it seems helpful. You know, and so just let me talk about it just for a minute as we as we think about those verses, because he gives this analogy that God is our master gardener, if you will. And I think, though, the analogy, many of you are not into horticulture and and into gardening and those kinds of things. I don't think it's rocket science to figure out. And Jesus says, I'm the true grapevine. I'm the real source of connection to the gardener. I'm the one that he planted, that he wants us to be in. It's not some other tree that's some false tree or some false thing. It's, it's the real vine, and that's me. And you're the branches. We are the branches. And we need the nourishment that comes up, that he provides to us, that staying connected to the word, that, that, that nourishment of water and minerals and things from the soil, the fertilizers that come up into us that can be fruitful. Occasionally, you need to prune a tree, and prune a a, a a plant so that light can penetrate to all places. You can cut the wild growth that goes out to stimulate growth in other areas. And the master gardener knows exactly where to trim that so growth can be healthy. Not only so it's shaped and looked well, so that it can be fruitful. Have you ever been pruned by God? It hurts. But it's healthy. He shapes you and molds you and allows light to get into different places so you can be fruitful in the right places and more fruitful. And he wants to do that. And then I fall into a more modern analogy. And Jesus, I'm not adding your words. I'm just trying to connect here a little bit that works for me. Imagine a lamp. I brought one this morning and it fell over in the car. It's like, okay, well, I don't want to bring a broken lamp in here. But sorry, really. Um, <laughs> Imagine a lamp here, and it really cook, and you connect it. That electrical power plant that supplies all the energy is God. That home wiring and electrical outlet that makes all that connection, that's Jesus. And that lamp can only function if it's connected, Right? Lola, the skillet, can only work if it's sitting on the stove and the stove's turned on. And so the lamp can only work if it's plugged in and connected, right? And it, and it gets this energy that comes from the master gardener, and it comes up through that wiring, through Jesus, into it, and it's able to function, run, and shine light around it and be fruitful and do what it's supposed to do. You can follow that analogy, right? Pretty easy. There's one more thing. Most lamps have a switch on them. You have to remain in me. We seem to have ability up here to turn things off. Sometimes you got to turn the lamp on. Though it's connected, it's not turned on. You need to turn it on. And there's one more watch out. Jesus said this, guys, you're the light of the world. You are. The gospel message is going to go out through you to other people. That's you. It's like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine for all to see so that everyone will praise your Heavenly Father. 
if we can put shades over our lamp, as we conform to the world to make it look good in our mind, or as sin creeps in and things like that, we can turn the lamp on and off, but he wants it out and open. He wants your life out and open. He wants you to be a light to those around you. For the gospel message doesn't spread through individual people one-on-one and master It does, but through all of us, not just a handful of people, I meant to say, but all of us. We have to stay connected to the power source. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. And here's what we're going to do. We've got a few songs of worship that we're going to sing this morning. As they come up and get ready, I'd like you to reflect on how you're staying connected to Jesus. Have you made your home with him? Have you asked him recently, uh, welcome into this other room? I I haven't taken you into this room recently (laughs) in my house, and uh, you should be in here for a while because it's pretty ugly. And uh, he may do some cleaning, may do some pruning. Maybe you have a room that's just bountiful and plentiful, and you haven't brought Jesus in there because you're too busy bragging to others about how great this room is you have. And you want to bring Jesus in there and say, Jesus, thank you for this room. Thank you for what you've done in my life. 